Thanks, my name is Tim. <clears throat> I'm an alcoholic. I'm pretty sure we're on concept five. <laughs> Does someone correct me if I'm if I'm wrong? Um, to quote a friend of mine, I don't know why I'm here, but I know that I am here, so I'm going to make the most of the fact that I'm here. Um, I'm going to pass on to you uh, uh, what I've learnt from other people over the last 27 odd years in, in AA. So concept five, uh, let's go with the world service long form. Throughout our world service structure, a traditional right of appeal ought to prevail, thus assuring us that minority opinion will be heard and that petitions for the redress of personal grievances will be carefully considered. Uh, we ought to just recap the structure of the concepts because it's not self-evident how they're structured. It's a system of God delegating what we're supposed to do in AA all the way from this ethereal consciousness up there somewhere, all the way down to the people who are actually doing the work on the ground. And the order goes this, this universal consciousness residing in the uh, individual consciences of the people in the fellowship. That expresses itself in the group conscience. The groups elect GSRs, the GSRs elect conference delegates, the conference comes together uh, and makes these decisions at, a, at an abstract level once a year and then we flip over into the practical side of things and the board of trustees take over to execute the decisions made by conference and they act in part on, uh, on their own account, so they, they take actions themselves, they have subcommittees through which they can act, and they have corporations through which they can act. And then uh, there's various forms of delegation within each of those structures. So that's the overall structure. Um, one and two, concepts one and two, uh, reflect the basic idea of uh, delegation moving from this sort of, this abstract notion of the, the consciousness of the fellowship as a whole down to the material plane where it gets expressed in literal words voiced by people at conference. And rather than going on to talk about the relationship between conference and the board or other matters, uh, concepts three, four and five are a digression into general principles governing um, the relationship between the delegator and the delegatee and also uh, uh, decision making in general. And so we're on the third of these little digression ones, uh, concept five. So the, the overall heading is right of appeal in concept five, but it's got two elements. And then there's a joker. I'll come to the joker later on. The two elements are the filing of a minority of a minority report. So this is an appeal in the strict sense. And then the filing of a personal grievance, and this is a petition. So although we've got this term right of appeal, it actually covers two things, an, an appeal proper and a petition. Uh, what else have we got? So these minority reports, the idea is this, just because the majority just because the majority has won does not mean that the show is over. Um, we know from concept 12 that the way decisions are to be made in AA is through discussion, vote and substantial unanimity. Now, substantial unanimity sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds like everybody agrees. In practice, is two thirds. Uh, groups or any other entities are at liberty. Conferences is, is governed by its own bylaws and so on. But um, a group can say we can only we can only pass a motion at two thirds or at three quarters. Um, what this means in practice is that although we aim for substantial unanimity, there's almost always some sort of minority left behind grumbling in the corner. And what concept five suggests that we do is to ask that minority, so, well, would you like to say anything else? 
Um, where this uh, comes into play uh, most strictly, in other words, so where this idea uh, is applied in its core form is in the context of conference. And this is where, for instance, you've got some minority view, maybe one delegate, two delegates, five delegates, ten delegates, who think the most frightful mistake has been made. And they can submit that in writing to the body that made the decision uh, that they disagree with. And here's the interesting thing. If they believe that it affects the fellowship as a whole, they can submit it to conference uh, and indeed to the board. Uh, what Bill talks about in this concept is that it's not just a right of appeal, it's a duty of appeal. So if you think the most terrible decision has been made, it, it's not only you may appeal against it, you really ought to. Uh, so you derive from that a moral obligation to be looking very closely at the decisions that are made in AA and exercising uh, uh, part of this, this custodial oversight which resides with everyone in the fellowship. If we're all responsible, we all have this custodial oversight and a, a, a right and a duty to monitor what's going on and to and to squeak if we think that something has gone wrong. Uh, where you see, where I see this applied most often in practice uh, is uh, when there is a group conscience meeting and there is a, a very, very contentious decision. I think in a healthy group, certain groups I've belonged to have done this. It, uh, you get the vote. Maybe it's two thirds in favour. Maybe it's three quarters in favour of changing the group format, for instance, going from, you know, uh, uh, alcoholics only may attend to anyone may attend. Um, engaging particular forms of public information work, having a public meeting, uh, whatever, the, whatever the decision is. To say to this minority, now we've had the vote, uh, the majority is one. Is there anything else you would like to say? And you give them a chance to speak. This happens at intergroup as well. This is a very good way of keeping intergroups running smoothly, is to give the minority a chance to express its view. So you let it express its view. You discuss it if any new points have been raised. And then there's the key thing. You ask has anyone changed their vote on the basis of what they've heard? Now, if someone has been swayed um, or someone says they've been swayed, you give everyone the chance to re-vote. Uh, and basically, this keeps going until, you know, you ask a minority opinion again. Is there anything else you would like to add? Is there anyone else who would like to speak? and you repeat until no further movement is taking place. Whilst there is further movement taking place in the uh, numbers of votes cast in favour of and against a motion, whilst there is still movement taking place, there's clearly room for discussion. People are clearly still processing what is going on. And the initiative is given to the minority to uh, push in this case. So you're, you're re you, you don't invite the majority to reiterate its views. You in invite the minority to, to elaborate on what they've been saying. And the other aspect of concept five is redress of personal grievance through petition. Um, and this applies to paid employees of the service corporations and unpaid trusted servants. And the basic procedure is that you uh, address your grievance initially to the body that is at fault. So if you've got, if you've got the hump with what intergroup has done, you think yourself very, very unfairly and poorly treated by intergroup, you address it to the body which you believe is at fault, which is intergroup. And in principle, escalation is possible all the way down to the general service board. Um, it's important when extending or it, it, well, I suppose one doesn't extend the right of, of petition, informing people that they have this right of petition, this right of grievance, that there should be no fear of reprisal 
against the individual for raising the petition. Now, I've seen this go wrong. And where it goes wrong is where the, the grievance um, occasions a kangaroo court at intergroup. So uh, where the person against whom the grievance is levelled is essentially put in the dock and pilloried by the individual in question. And then it, 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 the most, uh, it can actually cause more problems to allow these grievances to be aired. There has, there has to be some kind of process for determining whether or not you're going to hold a, an open session where everyone gets involved or, it, you know, is there another way of resolving this? And the first stage, and these are just practical ideas for procedures. This is not enshrined anywhere in the literature that I'm aware of. I've just seen how this has worked well and how this has worked badly. And so what I'm going to suggest now, what I'm going to present now rather, is how I've seen it work well. Let's say someone's got the hump with the intergroup. It is up to the chair of the intergroup, together with the little executive committee, maybe the treasurer, maybe the secretary, maybe the whatever else, the region rep, to determine whether or not there is a case to answer. Uh, there is such a thing as the vexatious or ill-founded grievance. And I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Uh, over the last few years, both of the major grievances I've seen have been highly, highly vexatious. The danger, well, I'll tell you what, what goes wrong first. You can have the kangaroo court situation or you can have the, um, the, the what I might, I hesitate to call it this, but the borderline personality situation where the game is to create as much kerfuffle as possible, to get everyone as exercised as possible, get everyone involved in the argument, and you just stand back and watch the show. You know, you the person that brings the grievance is the one sitting there with the popcorn watching everyone else go nuts. Uh, one of the situations I saw with uh, a vexatious grievance was to do with a treasurer who was um, uh, according to, I'm going to be careful how I say this, uh, according to what the group reported in its communications with the venue, had failed to pay the venue for a number of years, lied to the venue about why the, the venue hadn't been paid for, lied to the group saying that the venue had been paid for, and then denied all knowledge of this. Um, and the, now, he brought a grievance against the intergroup uh, for defamation of character uh, by because they warned other groups that this person has got form according to the groups themselves, according to groups themselves and according to certain venues in the intergroup, that this chap had form for uh, embezzling funds from the groups and lying to both the groups and two venues. And on the face of this, uh, there, there was no there was no case to answer, but unfortunately it got terribly out of hand and region got involved and all sorts of people got involved, hundreds of people running around worried about what this person could do. The fact is there was nothing there was nothing to address here. There really and there really there, I've seen other situations as well where uh, one in particular where a person um, did not turn up to an intergroup meeting where a vote was going to be held about, let's say it was public information, where a vote was going to be held uh, to determine who's going to be the public information officer. Uh, the person who was standing uh, did not turn up. Uh, about 30 seconds before the meeting started, texted the chair of the meeting to say that they weren't going to be there, but with no ex no no reason given, um, and so they weren't there. Someone else came forward who was eligible, and they were voted in as the public information officer. And the grievance was brought 
that this person was being maliciously excluded from the opportunity to do service because if if they hadn't because that you know they gave due notice you know the 30 seconds before the meeting they gave due notice that they weren't going to be there so the right thing to do in their view was for the intergroup to halt all of its public information activities for the next two months in order to give this person the opportunity to turn up and be balloted uh, uh, balloted for along with the other person um, and the person that made the decision to uh, uh, proceed with the election and the intergroup duly voted in someone else. Uh, it was someone that was known to the intergroup. They presented their service CV. It was all above board. Was pilloried at the intergroup. This the, the grievance should not have got that gone that far. Um, in my view, this is just a view, it should proceed to some kind of public hearing, public discussion, if there is a genuine case to answer. And then it needs to be structured very, very carefully rather than just who wants to talk about this? That's just not the right way to just not the right way to do this. A lot of these things can be dealt with in writing just a simple, clear presentation of, for instance, why the grievance is, is not appropriate. Uh, and then, you know, it can be escalated beyond that. But don't go straight to a, a public hearing with everyone involved. Um, if a grievance is received, very often that they're, they're <clears throat> not terribly well worded. I think it's completely legitimate to ask the person to base the accusation of wrongdoing more tightly on the traditions, the concept of guidelines and procedures. What rule has been breached? How, exactly how in accordance with AA tradition um, has this person been wronged? And to provide some kind of evidence. So the mere fact that someone is upset is not cause to bring a, a public hearing there's got to be some kind of um, a process here and to help the person do that there's nothing wrong with helping the person put in writing in a clear way that everyone at the intergroup can understand uh, uh, what has gone wrong and why uh, this the, the, the procedures haven't been followed for instance what what part of the service manual has been disregarded um, it's important as well, if you're going to hold some kind of public session, for it to be presided over by someone who is, as it were, in the clear, maybe someone from another intergroup, someone who's not implicated in the whole affair. So you've got some neutrality there. And to have a proper, you, you presume in, just like in, in criminal law, you presume it innocence, you give an equal hearing to both sides, um, uh, a good method, is, is, is the, the civil law systems in uh, most of Western Europe uh, go uh, the, the, the the civil proceedings. You have a let's say a, you bring a claim and then there is a response and then the claimant brings uh, a, a reply to the response and then there's another so, so you've got one two three four claimant defendant claimant defendant so you've now got four presentations and that's not a not a bad way of doing it because it gives them gives each side a chance to respond to each other and then put it out for more general discussion but there's got to be some kind of structure there i've seen situations where someone uh brought a, a vexatious grievance uh the person against whom the grievance was brought was heard last so the person that brought the grievance spoke first. Everybody else in the room get, got to throw in their, their tuppenny worth. And then only once they'd expressed those views was the person against whom the accusation was made allowed to say anything. And this to me is a, a breach of process. You've got to have some kind of balance between the two sides and you have the two sides present their view before you have the general, you know, everyone throwing their opinions in the ring so for now mercifully there are very few uh, genuine grievances which arise most can be dealt with informally those that can't be dealt with informally uh, can be often be dealt with in writing or with uh, a simple uh, hearing with uh, two or three people who are um, well regarded and 
outside the structure where the problem has happened, it gets resolved, and only in very extreme situations do you pr proceed to some kind of, of, of open hearing. Uh, and that seems to work very well. That seems to be effective and efficient and harmonious. Those are the three great parameters, effectiveness, efficiency, and harmony. Uh, the joker element of um, concept five is the third legacy procedure. And I think this comes under concept five because um, uh, it doesn't fit anywhere else. And we're talking about minorities anyway, so we might as well mention the third legacy procedure. And basically, I won't bore you with the full mathematical details, but basically, if you've got a bunch of people going for a role, you gradually whittle away the least successful candidates through votes. And if you're down to maybe two or three people and you can't get two thirds, you pull the winner out of a hat, which means, so what has this got to do with minorities? Uh, if you can't get two thirds, you pull it out of the hat. That means someone that got 42% or 27% can be voted in, let's say, as conference chair. Um, and the notion here, it's not super well argued in Bill W's uh, essay. Um, what he says is that, oh, this produces great harmony. I've seen it also produce great contention, but I'll come to that in a moment. It produces great harmony. It's this idea that, you know, the minority is sometimes right, so let's give them the benefit of the doubt on occasion. Um, to avoid this tyranny of the majority that he talks about. But I have seen a situation where um, I think it was about 63-37 uh, 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 for uh, a conference chair a number of years ago. And it went to the, the hat. They pulled the name out of the hat. And uh, the, the furore that created afterwards because of the perception that, you know, that the, the best person hadn't hadn't been chosen. I don't know if the best person was chosen or not, but the assertion that it produces harmony is just, in my experience, incorrect. But there we go. It's there. So we have it. This is the procedure that we have. Um, what else do we need to know? Um, although two-thirds is adequate, so it's certainly adequate as far as 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 conference in the in Great Britain uh, suggesting making binding suggestions to the board. Um, technically, the board can't be directed by conference because it's outside the scope of the directors of the, of, of the charity. But in practice, there's a tradition that, that it's binding. Although you can squeeze things through with two thirds. Uh, the aim is to avoid decisions leaving behind a disgruntled majority. So it's good practice to continue talking even past two thirds to see if there is a way of incorporating the views of the minority into the decision so the group doesn't have to split, for instance. Uh, so sometimes even if you can get two thirds, the sounding suggests you can get two thirds, you can have further reframings of the plan, or maybe you elaborate how the plan is going to be implemented in such a way that everybody's concerns are taken on board. And that is a that huge, I've seen that happen at group level, and you end up with very complicated motions sometimes, ones which, which incorporate ev everyone's views. But I've, I've seen that happen with my old home group would hold a, uh, a workshop once a month, which was open to all, um, uh, all members of 12-step fellowships. And the question is, what about the meeting afterwards, which was traditionally closed, a closed big book study, do, you know, can they get to go to the meeting as well? And I think what was agreed in the end was, yeah, they get to go to the meeting afterwards, but still only alcoholics can share or something like that. Um, and whatever the complicated resolution was, everybody's view was somehow incorporated into the motion. So that those are the two ways you can get unanimity. You can either persist with the motion until everybody agrees, or you can gradually adjust the motion in such a way that everybody's concerns are taken into account. And the group was hugely strengthened by that. 
Uh, there are some other benefits of this right of appeal, particularly the minority opinion. Um, the fact that things are debated openly is healthy. There's nothing worse in a group when you, it descends into factions and none of these are forced out into the open. So people don't get to express openly to the group what, what upsets them. It's just like with step five, you, you get your upset out into the room and it looks different once you've said it than it did inside your head. And people feel that even if the group goes against their view, they've been heard. I, for the people on the tape, I air quoted the word heard, of course. Um, what that really means is that those views are not just physically listened to, but, but the other side expresses the, the notion that those views are valid or that they're valuable or that there is a, a you know a case to be heard there uh, and this promotes harmony it means that people don't go away with the sense that uh, they're not being listened to bill talks a lot about the tyranny of an uninformed misinformed hasty or angry majority and i think one of the great things about this concept it is that the fact that it's there means that uh, you know you can't get away with riding roughshod over a minority, either in terms of um, shutting them up because they are allowed to speak or treating people badly in service because they're allowed to bring a grievance. The fact that the law is there and has some kind of sanction, uh, which is giving people the chance to speak, I my, I suspect there's no counter. We can't test the counterfactual here. We, we, you know, we can't go to an alternate universe where there is no right of appeal. But I suspect I've certainly been careful in service about how I handle volunteers in the knowledge that there is right of appeal here, that there is redress, that they can go to the intergroup of the region that put me in the place of the service officer and say, "Oi." Matey over there is misbehaving. Can you do something about it? Knowing that that um pressure valve is there i think certainly keeps me in check um sometimes you'll see in politics situations where there is a tiny majority but the tiny majority means that that side has all the power and this is what this concept seeks to prevent within aa the idea that there's a tiny majority in the group and now they're running everything um, there is a very curious idea buried in Bill W's essay, which is not talked about very often. Uh, and it's the question of uh, what the group conscience is. Now, there's a conflict between what Bill says in his essay on the con on concept five and what he says in the, in the 12 and 12, if my memory serves me correctly. Sometimes he talks about the group conscience being wrong. So, uh, tradition four, as we know, if we remember our notes on tradition four, is that uh, each group is autonomous, each group has the right to be wrong, and it will discover by implementing its bad policy that it made a mistake. I remember pushing very strongly for the, for the long form of the traditions um, uh, to be read out. Uh, uh, I don't know all of them or some of them at every single meeting. And I think two weeks, two weeks in, people were starting to, you know, self-stimulate and, and, and harm themselves because they just could, they could not stand steady. They could not, they could not stand the long form of the traditions being read out. And who can blame them? So we learned from experience that the decision was wrong. Fine. I think one week someone just stopped in the middle and said, I'm not going to read this shit anymore. Um, now, the idea buried in concept five in Bill's essays is that the group conscience isn't always right. Uh, sorry, the group conscience is always right. So what does that mean about a group or a region or an intergroup making a terrible decision. It means that it's not the group's conscience which is being expressed in the decision, it's something else. In other words, the egos, the individuals in the room. And this to me makes more sense. So what is going on sometimes when you have, as he says, an uninformed, misinformed, hasty or angry majority, 
that's not the group conscience. That's the that's an ego alliance, an ad hoc ego alliance, which has been formed in the group. Now, where I'm getting this from, he says, sometimes the individual must be the group's conscience. So this is in the in the sense of conscience in the language generally, that little voice in the back of your head, the minority that says this is just wrong. So the group conscience is always right. But the question is, is the group manifesting the group conscience or is the group conscience locked inside the individual conscience of one or more members who must then bring it to the group to have it absorbed by the group? So that's the idea that the group conscience is always right. But where is it? Who is hosting the group conscience at that moment? A note of caution about concept five. Um, a my, it, not only can a majority tyrannize, but a minority can tyrannize as well. Happens the whole time in AA that the person who is most offended, the person who is most upset, everyone just wants a quiet time and they want the person to shut up. So they make a decision which is going to quieten the noisiest, most uh, maladjusted person in the room. Uh, I've seen situations where people get spooked by a uh, minority. Um, uh, I, some of my work involves me uh, reading protocols of, of clinical trials, and um, sometimes there are, there are clinical, uh, there, there are uh, an animal trials as well. And sometimes they talk about what happens to hamsters, where if one of the hamsters gets spooked, all of the hamsters get spooked or guinea pigs. It's, I think it's the same thing. And it's just like that at conference. Sometimes you've got like two people in the room who are spooked by a decision and then everyone else gets spooked and the decision flips. Now, because this minority opinion is expressed right at the last minute, so you've been discussing it for several months in groups and at region, and then you discuss it in the committee for, you know, a day and a half, two days, and then you discuss it between the regions, then you come back to the committee, you reformulate it, you present it to conference, you have the full plenary session listening to it, and then a little voice perks up, throws something into the ring, and then everybody is is uh, uh, put off their stride by this, whether or maybe they're right. And then the whole thing gets blown out of the water and you just wasted a year's work. And not because the minority opinion has been carefully mulled over by the 120 people in the room. It's just this, this contagious um, uh, spookage. And I've seen this also, I've had this reported, I'm, I shouldn't really say this, I've had this report because they shouldn't have said it to me, but anyway. Um, uh, I've had this reported from a board of Alcoholics Anonymous in some country where there was some minor objection voiced. And as soon as that one person voiced the minor objection, everybody else got nervous of pushing ahead with a particular decision and so the decision went back to the drawing board and there was no real substance it was just one person didn't understand what was going on and wouldn't be talked around and the whole project was put it the project was put back by a year because of this so one's got to be terrible one's got to be terribly careful of um contagion with being worried by minority opinions just because a minority has expressed a view does not mean that. OK, uh, Gabrielle, can you hear me again now? OK, uh, there's not a lot I can do about that, I don't think. Let me just take off the headphones. Okay, can you, can you hear, how can you hear me now? Okay, I'll stick with that. It might have been some interaction with the headphones. Um, so just because there is a minority, the minority has expressed the view, does not mean, let's say it's one person out of a hundred or four people out of a hundred. Uh, they don't be ha have to be happy 
for you to proceed with the decision. So you don't have to push it until everyone is on board. If you have that feeling, that's when the minority starts to tyrannise because people don't feel comfortable proceeding if anyone in the room is unhappy. And maybe this is to do with growing up in an alcoholic household where, you know, while, whilst uh, 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 until mother's calmed down, everyone else has to remain on edge and the job is to calm mother down. And that, that whole that whole dynamic can get replayed, in my view, in AA as well, where uh, people are very people cannot tolerate anyone in the room being upset. So the whole route, the tail wags the dog. Uh, so what else? Um, application of tradition five, uh, concept five in life. Um, Dennis F. writes some very good essays about the concepts. And one of those, he talks a lot about uh, uh, speaking up, speaking up, uh, not just being a right, but being a duty. And not being frightened of other people's reactions, not being frightened that people will stop approving of you because you weighed in with your minority view. Uh, he talks about not colluding with what you sincerely believe is wrong and obeying the inner conscience, not necessarily the outer majority. Uh, one of the difficulties with this, if you attend an intergroup or an area or a district or whatever and you're really paying attention there's probably a lot that your conscience is telling you that you have to speak up about um, my experience is that uh, most people like to keep the peace in aa and that's a great thing there's nothing wrong with that until it's taken to a fault and a defi friend tom says a defect is a virtue taken to a fault my experience at region is that there is a small handful of people who speak up and then a big swathe of people who don't. And the result of this uh, is that it's always the same people who are voicing the minority opinion or the objection or the uh, observation that something doesn't accord with the manuals or the traditions or the concepts or the procedures or whatever. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, except there are two problems. Firstly, if it is always the same people who are listening to their conscience and speaking up, people start to associate those people with complaint. If everybody was bringing things up, those people wouldn't be associated with complaint because everybody is doing it. Now, the reason that's a problem is because people start to discount anything that those individuals say on the basis of, oh, well, they're just saying it because they're difficult or awkward or contrary or pernickety or whatever, and they don't listen to the substance. And this is where it gets crazy. It means that the only people who are actually listening out and speaking up are the ones who everybody else is automatically discounting because, oh, it's always them who complain. Um, secondly, it's there is an emotional cost. Every time you express a minority view, there is an emotional cost because you're setting yourself against the majority. Uh, this means that rotation is huge. This is one of the reasons why rotation is hugely necessary. It's unpleasant to discharge that duty and there's a limit to how long you can go on doing that without uh, causing ructions with the other people in the room. So that role of being the person who, um, I think the Aristotelian archetype is the joker, the, per, you know, the, the emperor, the, the, the boy that points out the emperor's new clothes. It's a, it, it's a limited role, it's a limited function, do it for a couple of years and then spend, you know, three to five years doing something entirely different. Uh, the other thing that uh, people talk about, so certainly Dennis F. talks about with Concept 5, is listening to other people's points of view. Listening to them to express them to the end. So let them talk it out. Uh, not immediately launching on what someone else has said to demolish it. Uh, to disagree without being disagreeable, to act actively encourage people to voice dissenting views or grievances, and to 
what I've been asked to do uh, by my sponsor is to listen calmly and respond guided by God rather than reacting to the dissenting view that's just been thrown into the, into the ring. Um, what else have we got here? Um, so one spiritual idea that Dennis F. and other people talk about is uh, the right of appeal in response to addictions or defects. When I'm in an active addiction or when I'm in an active defect, uh, my uh, defects as they manifest in my life are usually in the form of impatience and intolerance, uh, wholesale condemnation, give me something, I'll condemn it, uh, fretting, I don't know if any of you ever fret. I'm a big fretter. If there is not, if there is nothing wrong, I'll find something wrong in the distant future and magnify that uh, to make it as big as the problem I've just solved. Uh, what else? Um, the princess and the pea. There is almost nothing wrong, but the one thing which is wrong stops me from sleeping. And uh, never been good enough good enough, never doing enough. I, I haven't done enough today. I haven't achieved enough today. I'm not productive enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. When my defects are in control, my ego is in the majority and my spirit is in the minority. And I think this is a wonderful idea to exercise right of appeal is to sit in the corner of your spirit and appeal to the higher authority, which is God, against your ego, which is in the majority. Um, I have to do that about eight times a day, between seven and nine times a day. Um, right of petition. I think this is Dennis F. It could be someone else. Uh, when I feel lack or limitation in my life, it's OK to ask God for a more expansive experience of the universe. So I can go to God in a positive sense, asking for things. Uh, as I mean, I know there's the caveat on page 87 that if others will be helped, it's easy to word one. <laughs> yeah, help me have a more expansive life so that I, you know, I can present a more attractive view of what the AA program can offer to newcomers. Whatever, doesn't matter. Just you know, caveat it somehow. But not to feel that I have to shrink back and just be, you know, just put up with what is apparently handed to me. To go to God with a much more expansive view and say. I feel lack or limitation. What can we do about this? Practicing the third legacy procedure. This is a, a, an idea I found incredibly helpful. Um, and this is about, uh, you know, when, when does one have a group? A good example of when one has a group is when you go on holiday with friends. And the question is, where are we going to go for dinner this evening? What time are we going to go for dinner? You know, those major, which beach are we going to go to today? These major, major questions of holidays. And the third legacy procedure says, if you can't get substantial unanimity, um, pull a decision out of the hat. In practice, that's one way of doing it. But the other way of doing it is simply yield to the minority. If there is a minority, say, hey, why don't we do what you want to do today? So there isn't always the majority which is is having its way. And uh, if there are only two people, simply to yield to the other. So to yield to the other person in the relationship as the default position, rather than constantly insisting that everything be hammered out. Just I just yield to the person except when uh, there's a substantial reason. And if both of you are yielding, what I find I'm in a relationship with someone who yields, we both yield. Uh, except on things which we believe are, are, um, are mission critical. Um, if you're constantly yielding to each other, you end up automatically at a middle ground, which is satisfactory to both. I don't know how that works, but it seems to work better than both people trying to argue their corner. Um, being a minority within AA, this is another idea that has been given to me. Um, sometimes if you like to work a strong program or have to work a strong program in order 
oh, I don't know, not to die of alcoholism before Friday morning, uh, you're probably going to be in the mi minority um, in AA where you live. If you go to a meet, if you go to a half a dozen random meetings, a markdown, how much of the discourse in the meeting is about the steps, the traditions, the concepts, the practical application of the 12 step program to our lives. It's probably less than half of the time is spent doing that. It may be far less than that. Certainly when I got to AA, it was a, for years, I genuinely thought that the topic of meetings was here are some things I think about things I have felt in the last 24 hours or week, depending on when the last meeting was or when the last time I saw, just to get everyone up to date, what I think about what I feel. And occasionally, you know, one throws something else in, but essentially that appeared to be the topic. So if you go in talking about the steps, you're going to be in a minority. Um, and the job is to do this. Uh, if you're going to talk about the steps in a meeting where people don't talk about the steps, if you're going to talk about God in a meeting where people don't talk about God, um, to at least attempt to do it without self-righteousness, superiority or cockiness, without criticism, without fault finding, without attempting to lord it over the rest of the room. Um, you know, maybe we'll all make some small progress towards that ideal over the next decade or two. But that's the ideal to work towards. Uh, you don't want to kill the patient is the basic principle there. Um, uh, and resolving differences. Sometimes the majority, a decision has to be made. Are we going to move to venue, new venue A or new venue B because the existing venue is uh, uh, no longer going to be available? Often decisions have to be made. Um, to be confident about doing that. Um, so you do have to exercise power sometimes, but to do so kindly and not punitively. There are situations in marriages where one person has to override the other for one reason or another. And again, to do that kindly and not punitively. Um, that's pretty much, I, I should have something um, jazzy to finish this off with, but that was just the last point on my list. I'm going to stop with what was the last point on my list. I'm just going to scoot down, see if there are any questions. Uh, what's the difference between a grievance and a resentment. I think that's a that's a good one. Um, a, in the concept in the in the context of concept five, like a grievance is where uh, you have a legitimate complaint that the traditions haven't been followed, the concepts haven't been followed, the manuals haven't been followed, or other ag agreed procedures haven't been followed in some way. There's got to be some substantive basis to it. You can have a grievance without being upset. You can have a grievance which is simply, oh, by the way, uh, we didn't, um, I don't know, we didn't ask for CVs for this particular point. We really need to be asking for CVs for this role. It's super important. It's outward facing. We can't have just anyone in this post. You don't have to be upset to bring a grievance. By the same token, if you're aggrieved, it doesn't mean you have a legitimate grievance. Just because I'm upset doesn't mean someone else has done something wrong. Um, so just, just because someone doesn't like a result does not mean there is a, a there's cause to hear the grievance. Maybe you've got to hear what is being said to identify whether or not there is a case to answer. But when a grievance comes in, the question is, is there a genuine case to answer here? Or is this someone simply being upset? If it's someone simply being upset, you respond kindly and say, uh, on the face of it, we can't see any breach of procedures here. We can't see any breach of the traditions or the concepts. We can't see any breach of the manual. We understand you're upset. 
Um, we really glad you, you know, you went for the role or whatever it was and whatever we can do to help include you in the future, please let us know. But if you want us to proceed further, you're going to have to demonstrate why you believe the correct procedures haven't been followed. So you respond kindly to someone who is merely upset and throwing their toys out of the pram, but you don't proceed with the grievance procedure just because someone has, someone is upset. A vexatious grievance is a grievance which is brought not because procedure hasn't been followed or the concepts or the manual or the traditions haven't been followed, but for some underlying psychological purpose, whether it's to punish or to cause trouble or something else. It can become clear, very clear sometimes that there is more going on behind a grievance than simply neutrally pointing out that a procedure hasn't been followed properly. I'm sure you've seen that on occasion, that there's a tiny little bit of emotion going on in the room and one gets the sense maybe this is about something which happened a few years ago and it's being, it's being replayed. You're getting a historical reenactment. So someone has been triggered. I mean, hell, I spent the last 50 years being triggered by shit. So I get being triggered. But there is a place and a way of dealing with being triggered. And um, I have never co-opted Concept 5 in order to act out my, you know, for every... I, I, boy, have I looked for opportunities to bring grievances, but I've never found a legitimate one. Have I been upset in AA a hundred thousand times? Uh, but I know how to deal with it and to 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 bring up um, points which are relevant to the business of the group, not merely to act out. So that's what I think a vexatious grievance is. Uh, Gabrielle, any more? Oh, we've got another question. What happens when the minority? voice in your home group is suggesting insane things. Um, uh, Bill W's response to how you deal with public criticism is really helpful here. It's a different topic, but the response is the same. You carefully, you carefully set right factual inaccuracies, and you do so simply and briefly. You don't wait for it to be taken on board. You just go on to the next point, <laughs> because often the weird suggestions are not coming from a rational place. So you're not going to you have to formally deal with them so that it's minuted in the group records. But you're not necessarily going to get the person bought in. So you don't have to to harangue them with reason until they see it. You just simply state it, record it move on to the next item. Um, but ultimately, this is the great thing about the group conscience. If someone um, uh, if someone is suggesting something crazy, what do you do? You discuss it. Maybe there's some setting up straight of some facts. You discuss it and you vote. And then there is substantial unanimity. The, the vote will sort it out. If it's crazy, everyone else will see that it's crazy. If they don't leave the group, you're in a group of crazy people. You're not going to that. There's Al-Anon's really helpful. I mean, I, I haven't mentioned Al-Anon very much, but. If you're not a case for Al-Anon by the time you get to AA, you know, if you weren't brought up in a household affected by alcoholism or Alanonism, maybe you spent some time with alcoholics and drug addicts during your drinking or using. And then even if you didn't, um, uh, by the time you've been in AA for, I don't know, 10, 15 years, and you've been surrounded by unreconstructed alcoholics acting out, you know, all day, every day, you know, in those years before you realize you're allowed to turn your phone off at night, those years, um, you're going to need some serious Al-Anon. And there's uh, a great Al-Anon book called Making Crises Work For You. And it talks about how you can't expect reason from an unreasonable person or logic from an illogical person. Um, if someone in a group conscience is illogical or irrational, you can't fight it with logic or reason. Well, what are you going to do? You just have to listen to it. 
and then you let someone else share. Um, it's more tempting to believe that you can have power over someone that is logical and rational by pulling rank with logic, log, logic and reason. It's much scarier to realize you're completely powerless over it. You're not going to change the way someone else's brain is wired. So don't try. Just let everyone share, move to a vote, let it sort itself out. Very little needs responding to actually in these complex group discussions. Very often, if you just let the crazy points sit there without being addressed, it goes away. It doesn't get reiterated. Uh, addressing crazy points often uh, makes them center stage. The person who brought it up is upset that it's now being addressed. And now the whole meeting becomes about the crazy point. It's the whole thing of, you know, the, 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 the uh, craziest person in the room setting the agenda for what is going on in the room. And so that I think it was, I always forget which, maybe it was Pope Pius Twelfth or John Twenty-Third, one of those two. Um, when he was invested as Pope, um, picked up a, a little phrase which came from, a, I think, some kind of parish priest in Italy from the 16th century or so, um, where he said, observe everything, disregard most things, correct a little. And that's super helpful in group conscience meetings, that if there's something which is really egregious, then say something, but don't launch on every single little point. So with exercising concept five uh, region, um, I would tell, because I, as I said earlier, uh, piping up has a cost. Uh, there's a reputational cost, there's a credibility cost. If you pipe up too often, you become the boy that cries wolf, even if you're right. So to play those cards uh, gingerly, to only speak up with the minority opinion if it's really necessary, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said right now? And to wait, what I tend to do in region is to wait to see if anyone else makes the point and make the point only at the, at the 11th hour. If no one else is going to make it, ugh, you sigh and you make the point, but not be the first person to jump in every single time. So that's a little bit of experience about how to exercise concept five without becoming the most hated person in the room straight away. You're going to become the most hated person in the room, but at least give them a couple of years to realize that they dislike you. Don't let them know straight away. Just just, you know, <laughs> gently, gently catchy monkey. Uh, Dennis F. Essays. Um, um, uh, can, Gabrielle, can I send links to the whole group? Right, I'm going to um, just find a link. Give me a moment. Right, there's a link I just posted, which is to uh, a Google Drive folder, which has got loads and loads of uh, materials on the concepts and the traditions from all sorts of different people and sources, official ones, unofficial ones, uh, Dennis F stuff, AA pamphlets from Great Britain, other summaries and things. So there's an awful lot of material there if people find that useful. So I, it's almost 11 o'clock, so I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much, everyone. Please join me in uh, thanking Tim again. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Um, so we'll be here next week for Concept 6 next time. And um, uh, we will finish with the serenity prayer to the God of your understanding. God. God. Grant me serenity. To accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Coming back. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.